0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Gargi, and today I have with me Stephanie Le Menager and Teresa Sri. Uh, Stephanie is Barbara and Carlisle Moore, Distinguished Professor in English and American Literature and Professor of Environmental Studies at the University of Oregon in the U.S. She's a co- co-founder with Stephanie Foote of Resilience, a journal of environment and humanities. Teresa is Associate Professor of English at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She is the author of Hope at Sea, Possible Ecologies in Oceanic, uh, Oceanic Literature. They have together edited this anthology, Literature and the Environment, critical and primary sources published with Bloomsbury Academic, uh, Academic last year. As always, um, I'd like to start with the beginnings what's the genesis of this anthology? How did you come to work on this project? Anyone of you could take this question.
1: <laughs> well, I'll, I'll say a few words, if that's okay. And then maybe Tess also has a few words to say. Um, hi, everybody. I'm Stephanie. Uh, and nice to meet you, Gargi. Um, happy to be part of your discussion here today. So this was a project that um was presented to Professor Shuri and myself by Bloomsbury Academic um, in a very broad way. They they said, you know, we'd like to have this collection, uh this four-volume collection on literature and environment. Would you be interested? And I know for myself, I was interested in part because I felt like this field has been been part of a cultural movement um, in a kind of surprising way, even though, you know, we can look at it in a very academic context, beginning with eco-criticism and its evolution in the 1990s. um, Really, there are many ways in which the field imaginary of literature and environment, which is very broad, has been part of a movement to reimagine humanism maybe to even push humanism to the side and enter a new era of thought called post-humanism. It's also been part of a movement to um, provincialize uh, European and and Anglo-American modes of thought, uh, to use a phrase from Depeche Chakrabarty's famous book, Provincializing Europe, and it's opened the door to, I think, a new and profound um, centralization of indigenous thinking uh, and criticism and writing within what used to be known as environmental studies. So I feel like there's been a kind of um, catalystic aspect to the study of literature and environment that uh, is valuable, but in a way, part of the catalytic. Uh, aspect of it is that it is displacing itself, that it's kind of pushing, it it itself may be kind of ending as a field imaginary as these other um, voices and modes of criticism and authority come to the fore. So in some ways, this is a retrospective on a field that may not have a very long uh, genealogy going forward, um, but that I think has, has changed the way that the humanities are understood within certainly uh, the European and American Academy. So those are my motivations. Um, and I know I was really excited to work with Professor Shuri because of all the work that she has done in postcolonial and decolonial studies.
2: I can jump in here too. Um, first of all, I'm Tess Shuri and uh, Gagi, thank you so much for having us uh, on the podcast. <laughs> Um, I love the way that Stephanie just described kind of the this field and how it has been changing and sort of becoming dispersed um, and sort of distributed. Um, I, uh, I guess one reason that I really wanted to get involved in this is that I love collaborative research, and I think that's something um, that... has not been as common in literary studies and the humanities, but in this field, literature and the environment, as well as the environmental humanities, that is quite prevalent um, and encouraged. And so that was um, one thing that interested me. And then just following up on what uh, Stephanie was saying, this is such a kind of diverse, uh, deep, uh, ever-changing sort of field, and I was really drawn to thinking about it in maybe a larger sense than I usually do um, in my own sort of specific area of it so we were able to bring so many different kind of currents of research in this field together um, areas like post-colonial criticism and environmental justice and new materialisms and so it was really exciting to to think in a broader way than I often do as a scholar.
0: Um, You have brought together 100 essential critical articles across four volumes, and the publisher's website claims that this is a comprehensive collection of the most important academic writings in this field. Um, I know now, now, uh, as Stephanie said, that this was proposed by uh, the publisher itself, but did you have um what was your justification um when you th- when you thought why is there a need for this ontology? what what justification did you give yourself
1: yeah thank you well first of all i don't think Tess or i would say it is a comprehensive treatment of the field and we you know first of all we're aware that we're within the u.s academic system even though Uh, Tess is from New Zealand It has a different perspective on, um, you know, kind of a, a, I think a really healthy, critical perspective coming from outside of that, that system, that national system. But, um, you know, we're aware that there's some real regional and, and, um, you know, international kinds of limitations on this uh, collection that we uh, weren't able to entirely transcend. So I just want to make that kind of critical comment about comprehensiveness first, but then I'll say that I think, um, as I said in my my answer to your first question, Gargi, I, I think that there's a way in which, regardless of the limitations, regardless of the sort of privileging in certain ways of voices that are allied to global power, uh, which we couldn't entirely get away from, I do feel like there's been a fairly profound critique of um, of traditional forms of humanism with their racist and colonialist biases, a fairly profound reevaluation of the limitations of of capitalism and the ways that that has structured university systems uh, throughout the world, but certainly in the US and and in Britain and Europe uh, and Australia, uh, all countries that are well represented in our in our uh, collection. So I think that we're when we look at the, a collection like this, we're looking at, a kind of re-evaluation of what it means to be human, a reevaluation of what the aspirations might be for uh, a, a mode of social being and a mode of education that takes us into a transition period away from fossil fuel ca- capitalism. Um, I don't want to make claims that are too grandiose for this collection or for Uh, the work that any of us do, but I I think that um, work that happens in the academy does interact with larger social movements, and I feel like a lot of the works represented here are part of social movements that are profoundly critical of colonialism, that are critical of humanism, it's traditionally understood, um, that try to usher in a, a world that is more attuned to both ecological justice and social justice. And- and I find that very exciting. And so it, it seemed to me worth it to become part of this project yet I'm also aware of the limitations, the fact that it's not comprehensive, also the fact that it, it comes at a very high price point, which um, both Professor Shuri and I regret.
2: Yeah, I would um, just follow up on that. As Stefan and I, from the very beginning kind of talked about how like, uh, we, it would be impossible to sort of bring together the field in any absolute or kind of perfect way, and so um, I think what we sort of ended up doing was drawing on a um, a range of scholarship that uh, is very diverse, but that we could we organize in, into kind of areas so that we could highlight some of the affiliations and exchanges that are going on in, in specific areas of the field. So, um, you know, we have kind of sections on debates about the term nature in the field. Uh, we have a section on, um, you know, decolonizing the field, which is, um, at least in some parts of the world kind of developed and to emphasize, to emphasize sort of very particular narrow set of literatures. Uh, so we, We definitely were being kind of selective with the field um, rather than trying to sort of create a coverage of everything. But um, in terms of the question of why I see this um, project as important or or justified, I think um, to me there's so much exciting work going on in literature and the environment and the environmental humanities around sort of how imagination and stories and the arts, um, you know, interact with environmental crises, um, you know, both are shaped by them and shape them. And uh, also, as Stephanie was saying, around some of the ethical and social issues that are woven into these crises too. So uh, I really hope that the collection can suggest kind of the value of humanistic approaches to the environment.
0: Uh, Before we come to the organization of this book, I want to ask if you had any particular audience in mind when you were writing this, or was this also specified, or was this specified with the publisher itself?
1: I know one of the uh, ways that I got through graduate school was reading collections such as this (laughs) so i i imagined and i don't know if this is proven to be true or is going to prove to be true or not but i imagined myself um i went to a fairly conservative uh institution for my graduate degree where um some of the field um some of the work in the fields i was interested in wasn't really being done at my institution and so it was it was important for me to find collections and sort of reviews of the field and of professional possibilities um, that I couldn't find at my home institution. And that's, that was the audience I imagined. I I imagined graduate students, but I think um, maybe the publishers had other ideas and I'm curious to see what, what Tess says. So.
2: I would, I would definitely say something um similar when I was in grad school. I don't think there was any other student or um, professor who was working in literature and environment uh, at my university, and so, uh, and there there weren't that many kind of overviews or well, not overviews, but sort of um uh, pieces that really kind of draw together some of the major currents um and areas in the field. So. I would definitely um, hope that this could be of interest to people maybe starting out in the field, possibly people teaching uh, as well um, and sort of wanting to see how a kind of how, how a introduction to this field might be structured um, and uh, to also kind of get a sense of some of the range of the field. So that could be another audience.
1: Yeah, I, if I can add one more thing to that, I, I agree with teaching uh, or people who kind of decide that they have an interest in the cultural studies of environment uh, that they didn't realize they had. And we're hoping that the collection is broad enough and diverse enough that everybody can find a point of entry into it and then build, build their own genealogy or their own field imaginary. You know, that was kind of the, the desire, I think. I think that we had not to be comprehensive per se, but to give people a strong overview that is diverse enough that you can then take this collection and begin to build your own critical infrastructure from it.
0: Um, I would also like to talk a little bit about now the organization, Uh, as you have said there are four volumes to this anthology, the first is the field genealogies networks and trajectories, the second is why literature, and the third is about interdisciplinary conversations and the last one is called field context. Um, were these titles also um decided before you had the call for papers, or did, was this something that came out as a result of the conversations that you had? Because I I read that there was also a call for papers for suggestions. Am I wrong?
1: Yeah, um, there there was a call for papers. I I feel like I should let Tess speak first this time. Do do you want to go oh. ahead, Tess? Oh. <laughs> Sure.
2: Yeah, we did a sort of crowd, we approached it in some ways through a kind of crowdsourcing method. Like we wrote to a lot of colleagues, um, as many as we could think of and uh, got suggestions, you know, what would they want to see in this kind of collection? And we did get a lot of amazing suggestions. And then from memory, we sort of, as we were reading through and finding these pieces and sort of adding to them ourselves we just started thinking how would we how on earth would we organize this um, and some kind of broad structure started emerging the collection starts off more I think in the the realm of literature and the environment um, and more in literary studies and sort of histories um, there and then it uh, moves to the kind of more interdisciplinary aspects of the field into the environmental humanities but that was sort of the process yeah
1: I would agree it's kind of a almost a dialectical process where we have the crowdsourcing which was really really helpful and we try to acknowledge everyone or at least most of the people who participated in that in our acknowledgements and then we had a you know a kind of series of conversations about how do we organize this, and and we really wanted to emphasize the relationship between the kind of cultural disciplines, sometimes known as the humanities, and and the sciences, which are crucial and foundational to the development of this field. Um, but we also wanted to talk explicitly about what the affordances of literature are what does literature make possible that maybe other expressive forms don't do quite as well and why is literary study in some ways at the center of a movement to to shift values in the humanities away from the human um, and towards relationships toward interrelationship in particular Um, is there a way in which this field is naturally dissolving uh, into a kind of series of interdisciplinary collaborations was a question we had and maybe that actually says something about the strength of the field rather than its weakness. It seems to me that most things that are worth um, paying attention to don't hold space forever and you know that may be true of literature and environment as well. Yeah.
0: Um, in the introduction, the very introduction of this book, you have also distinguished between ecocriticism, ecological cultural studies, and environmental humanities. Can you elaborate on the, dif- the distinction between these three for the listeners? Um, Teresa, maybe you would like have... to... I
2: can start. It. Yeah, so eco ecocriticism um, refers to a kind of more disciplinary approach, so um, to the study of... Uh, literature in connection with environmental issues it it was a term that kind of got institutionalized in the 1990s through the establishment of some programs academic programs and, and journals and um so i think of criticism as a, a somewhat narrower concept and then environmental humanities is this fairly vast um field of exchanges across uh, different humanistic disciplines, also uh, with the humanistic social sciences.
0: And uh, ecological and I, cultural studies.
1: Yeah, thank you, Gargi. Yeah, I would add that ecological cultural studies um is serving in our volume as a catch-all term for work in uh, the study of ecology and culture that doesn't quite fit the, the rubric of ecocriticism, um, but maybe also isn't actively participating in what we think of as the environmental humanities and ecological cultural studies often incorporate some version of Marxist or post-Marxist thought. So I think about the work of Raymond Williams in particular as a kind of originary point for ecological cultural studies, but I think you could also see uh, ecological cultural studies in the work of post-colonial critics like Elizabeth de or Rob Nixon. Um, There are any kind of uh, work that seems to have a particular uh, Marxist inflection and, and a kind of pays attention to questions of justice that incorporate critiques of capitalism and class would definitely be within what I would call ecological cultural studies. So I think we're we're both using the term as a kind of broad term to catch what doesn't quite fit within ecological or sorry eco criticism or environmental humanities. But we're also using the term to specify people whose critical and ideological orientations might be more allied with um, cultural studies as it was understood uh, in the British tradition after Raymond Williams and Stuart Hall.
0: Um, Not far from this is also the distinction between ecological and environmental, given that, as you have already pointed out, there are many complex and diverse ways in which these uh, fields are coming together and interacting with each other. Is this an important distinction to make? And if so, why would you say that?
1: I think you know we're kind of stuck with the term environment, um, and I don't want to be the kind of English professor that spends my career taking apart terms that carry uh, cultural burdens that i don't I don't care to associate myself with, but but I will say that the term environment, you know, as as many critics have have made note of, is a term that suggests that somehow uh, that which is not human, and including the many relationships that the human uh, species has with non-human being, is somehow an external externality. Is somehow located outside of uh, the very foundation of what we are as human animals, and that is uh, a kind of dualistic inheritance from the you know Judeo-Christian traditions of, of Europe. And uh, we're not necessarily trying to perpetuate that. And yet the term environment has this tremendous purchase. It's been associated with various social movements. It has a power in the world. Uh, and so it, it sort of stands in the place of um, maybe more precise and, and better uh, understandings of what, what we mean when we try to talk about non-human lives and more than human systems. Now, ecology, of course, um, for us, uh, coming out of a, of a sort of Anglo-American university system relates very much to um, the, the science of ecology, which came about in the 1950s as a critique of the military industrial complex to go back to the historian Donald Worster's understanding of the history of ecology as a science. Um, it goes back farther than that, but its popularization has a lot to do with critiquing the military industrial complex uh, the kind of mentality that could justify dropping an atomic bomb, uh, all of that, you know, a, a kind of nihilistic uh, version of of power that we can see in the Cold War. Um, so I think ecology has its own political resonance, but it also has this foundation in science, which uh, makes it much more attuned, I think, to a, a kind of um, sensitivity to more than human systems and the importance of valuing those profound interrelationships amongst all lives that make it possible to continue living on this planet. So uh, ecology has a sort of, um, to my mind at least, more explicitly scientific, but also post-humanist resonance to it. When I take, talk about ecological justice, I'm following David Schlossberg's work in which he talks about ecological justice specifically is about justice for the more than human world, whereas environmental justice is, is about essentially social justice within an environmentalist framework uh, that makes sure to distribute um, the burdens of industrialization and, and development uh, equally amongst all humans and also to simply try to alleviate human suffering as a result of of that kind of development. Um, I don't know if that makes it clear. I feel like I've talked maybe too long, but there's there's a good deal to think about in regard to what terms like ecology and environment hold and the ways that they are very specific to uh, the wealthiest nations and their sort of history of wielding power.
0: Teresa, would you like to add something? Um
2: I think Stephanie summed that up really beautifully. Thank you. Uh, I I, yeah, I would just reinforce I think that they they do have specific histories and nuances um and and yet they often are used interchangeably um and. There's some, I think there's a lot of terms in the field that that can be somewhat troubling or create a certain friction. There are others like nature and the non-human and the human. And I think we we spend some of our time, you know, being attentive to those issues and um, to the histories behind the terms. And then um, as Stephanie also said, it can be important to allow oneself to kind of focus on other things as well i'm um, in the field and um so but yeah i the, this discussion was making me think of my uh one of the classes that i teach on fantasy and ecology and students Um, Sometimes do complain to me that there's not enough science in the course because I do think that term ecology kind of raises that expectation. And so I do sometimes think, oh, maybe I should change the title to fantasy and the environment so I can sort of then focus on how our fantasy engages with, you know, the relations between people and um, other creatures and ecosystems, but without having to kind of put a lot of focus on uh, the science of ecology. So that that is just an example of some of the kind of expectations that the different terms can raise.
0: Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at That's olly.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Um, and uh, introduction to the first volume of this anthology uh, you're saying, and I'm putting it in quotes here. Uh, this volume challenges the familiar history of eco-critical practices as a singular process narrative that unfolds in waves could you unpack this for us a little
1: sure well we're referring there to um uh professor scott Slovic's um important theory of the development of eco-criticism as a field primarily within the US um although i think he uses an anglo uh, anglo-american framework um and uh, first of all, this isn't this isn't a collection that's explicitly rooted in, in the story of eco criticism. Even though we really want to respect that story and respect all the work that the founders of eco criticism did to make our own thought possible, you know, including Professor Slovic. Um, so, uh, what what we see though when we kind of look at the history of uh, critical work on literature and the environment, broadly speaking is a lot of sophistication at all stages and a lot of uh, kind of potentially radical thinking at all stages of of critical um, engagement. In other words, the people who were writing very early uh, in this field, in 1970s even, um, had some really interesting ideas that are being reiterated in various ways now. Um, and certainly, Cheryl Glotfelty, who introduced eco criticism within the American Academy and, in some ways, worldwide, in her uh, volume with Harold Fromm, um, her essays uh, in that book invite uh, a, a kind of thinking that um, is, in many ways, um, pushing towards um, indigenous thought and philosophy, pushing away from a uh, kind of colonial structures of of, of, of epistemological uh, understanding, um, trying to think differently about how we know what we know. She even to some degree invites some of the insights of new materialism by talking about the porosity of human uh humanity and its sort of interrelation with uh others in this world. So, I mean, we could we could say if we were interested interested in a generational model that somehow you know this is the beginning and then all this other work becomes more sophisticated and builds on it but on the other hand you can say that there's in the beginning a lot of the same insights that we see reiterated in different ways uh, in very contemporary eco-critical work and then if you expand on the field and say well it's not just eco-criticism we're interested in but this other idea of environmental cultural studies or ecological cultural studies based more on a Marxist tradition, uh, environmental media studies. um, If we wanna look to at all of the philosophical and activist contexts that have been brought to bear on uh, literature and environment as a multidisciplinary field, um, you know, you begin to see that um, there isn't isn't, uh, one unifying story that can be imagined in terms of one generation surpassing the next, um, this, is, this is a field that has been to some degree radically open to uh, elements from outside since its inception.
2: Oh, I would agree with that. I, I think we, we really, from the very beginning, we were super clear that we wanted to avoid framing this in terms of a wave model of scholarship where you could kind of imply that earlier texts are sort of outdated in some way. Um, uh, and so we, even within our sections, we kind of, each section, we we tried to draw on texts that were written and published in different times. And, uh, you know, that is kind of quite a sort of big area in literature and environment and the environmental humanities is thinking about sort of past cultures and how they might be estranging you know how they are complex on their own terms or even sometimes how they can be strangely familiar to us so we sort of wanted to in the way we structured the book and organized the material we wanted to kind of echo that that really complex sense of time um, and uh, its relationship with environmental thinking so
0: Um, Of all the people in uh, the field of literature and environment or ecology slash and or ecology, uh, I have interviewed for this uh, podcast, I've always asked this question, why literature and environment, and you have a very innovative way of uh, asking this question uh, in the second volume. And uh, which is, and I'm quoting here again, uh, why literature has been this uh, the seedbed for so much environmental criticism and thought. So my question is, why indeed? And I because I hadn't reflected on the importance of this question for uh, the academic literature. And if you could also talk about why has this question um, occupied such a prominent space?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that is a really fascinating question and um, not one that I feel that we have a definitive answer to because literature in a way is so moldable and it does so many things. One of the things that we talk about literature as being interesting for is its often it's very imaginative and it it is often diverging from a very kind of strict realism or from an effort to kind of offer a kind of faithful sort of fairly direct representation of something and um, so we mentioned fantasy and uh, surrealism and some of the discussions about those literary modes in the field and the way that sometimes the world that we're living in can feel so jarring or unpredictable or strange um, that these literary very imaginative kind of engagements with the world and literature, while they're not sort of directly mapping those shifts and changes, they are kind of resonating with people in terms of some of their experiences um, of what it is like to be you know, living with climate change um, or you know, things like um, really intensive fires or uh, oceanic change. So that sort of fictionality or use of imagination and literature is one opening onto that question. But there are many more. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I, I would say, um, two th- things for me. Uh, one, um, you know, no no present tense is inevitable or total. And I do feel like literature kind of reminds us of that in in just in its its mode of being, you know, it, it alter it, it offers alternate versions of the real to remind us of how provincial any given reality might be. And to also open the possibility for radical change, uh, for difference, uh, and and for social transition. So that's one way that I get sort of find excitement and possibility in the literary and in the arts more broadly, not just literature. Um, and then I would also say, um, for me at least, in literature we see something that some of our um, feminist uh, science studies and new materialist scholars also uh, emphasize for us, which is that uh, relationship precedes relata, that, that it's it's not so much that the world is made up these sort of isolato uh, individual agents who find a way to come together, but rather that uh, any given consciousness is is a kind of a network of of. Of relating entities, um, it's 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 sort of a powerful um, representation of that. In a recent book, would be Jenny Offill's *The Weather*, you know, which is a fine novel of of climate crisis, but also a novel of consciousness in which the weather is very much the stuff of the mind. Um, you can find you know similar examples in other literature, certainly. But I think that is there's something very profound about the way the literature can express the deep interrelationship and entanglement of the so-called human in the world with the world um
0: in the third and the fourth volume of this anthology you have put together um um, um lots of context for scholars of literature environment or 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 students, undergraduate and graduate, who would be interested in this question. Uh, I want to know about um, how was the selection process done? And I'm asking this because um, when you are um, specifying particular works, did it make you apprehensive that this would also become standardized, because I mean, you have said that you're you're looking at it as a means to reach the future. Did you did you feel that uh, the future may become standardized through these anthologies? This particular anthology, if I might ask, was this a question that came up, or um, it wasn't really?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, and I mean, I would say you know, that this book is only intending to reach the future in the sense that the past is entangled with the future, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not, we're not predicting or mandating, uh, anything, but we're trying to give, uh, a reasonable account of a series of, of pasts and, and of a, of a kind of intertwined set of histories of ideas, um, we had all kinds of limitations on what we were going to present. I mean, as as Tess and I prepared for this interview with you, Gargi, we were actually looking back on our tables of contents and seeing all of the things we were trying to include and in all of the cuts that had to be made, um, sometimes because we simply couldn't get permission for articles or because the permissions were so expensive that we could not include things that we wanted to include. So there were there were decisions that were made for us that we didn't, approve of, you know, uh, but we had to accept. Um, uh, So, I mean, you know, absolutely, there there are ways in which this, um, this set of um, collaborative possibilities that volume three and four lay out is limited. um, But at the same time, I still can say, having looked at the most recent table of contents, in addition to all of those that we had to abandon, that I think it's fairly generative. And that is all that we hoped we could be, which is to say not comprehensive, not mandating a certain program of study, but rather generative. What have been some interesting and exciting conversations that have taken place between scholars, activists, authors, uh, that could be built on by others, how can we lay them out uh, in the best possible way, um, even you know, in the face of some obvious limitations? There's, like I said, a very specific global regional bias that we couldn't really entirely get beyond in this collection. Um, we did try to, to push beyond it, but we understand that we didn't entirely succeed in that. Um, there are ways in which um, the field of literature and environment um, eludes capture. uh, And that's actually kind of a good thing. Um, And I think we try to make note of that as much as we can. Um, So hopefully our humility in the face of the hugeness of this field, as well as um, our kind of continual positing of the fact that this is a series of conversations that we hope is generative and not, and we recognize is not complete prevents a, a sort of um colonization of future study
2: we definitely tried to emphasize the limits of the project and the introductions um in, in several uh places uh, that was something that i was almost surprised by the kind of limits that came up um i felt them so strongly while we're working on this and as stephanie said it was everything from literally getting denied permission for some things to just feeling my lack of knowledge and awareness in certain areas of the field. Um, uh, so those those limits just felt very pressing at times while we were working on this. Um, something that we were talking about uh, before just before this um meeting was how dense this us collection is in a way like um you know I'm not sure if anyone will read it um from beginning to end but it would be a lot of work and um it would create all kinds of openings into different kind of areas of the field that are not directly represented or engaged here so I do think that every essay in the collection is a kind of Entry into more areas of the the field, so I would hope that people might find their way from this to to things that we didn't include too.
0: Um, what do you hope the readers takes from this book, or what do you hope changes in academia after this book is published?
1: I think. I think um, oh, go ahead. Oh, you start. <laughs> no, you go ahead. <laughs>
2: Um, I hope that someone uh, reading it would feel kind of inspired by the range of different possibilities for what it can mean um, to be involved in this field. It it does cover a lot of different kinds of areas and debates and discussions uh, that are going on in the field. I hope that they would come away with a sense of the depth and the complexity of um you know research uh, that's um being done um done here and um you know maybe you know my one of my favorite sections is the primary uh text sections where we've primary text section where we've included excerpts from literary works um and so i hope someone would um know really enjoy uh reading through those very kind of inspiring and interesting pieces and um maybe think about more ways to study them too
1: yeah and i I would agree with all of that um i would also say i hope that um it it's a volume that helps readers to get a, a kind of at least um first view of how A certain history of ideas has developed over time in relation to the way that literature and to some extent other media has engaged um, the more than human world and has been shaped by the more than human world. Um, I think for me, creating the volume also reminded me that um, being human is not only something to regret. (laughs) because I see so much in it of, of brilliance, of engagement, of, of an aspiration towards justice, and and also of just a profound sort of eros or, or sort of joyous desire uh, to be enamored with and entangled with, with the world, with the world of radical others. And, you know, there's so much right now to feel... Um, regret about, certainly coming from a US perspective, uh, there's so much to feel afraid of right now in the world. And um, there's, there's a great deal in this thought that to me is a resource for not just changing the way that we study culture in the academy, but also a resource for reminding everyone that cultural expression is profoundly valuable and and possibly contributes to our, our biological survival, our ecological survival.
0: Um, Because we are now at the end of the podcast, I'd like to take a little bit liberty here and ask you about your future projects. What are you working on right now? What can we hope to read from you in the future?
2: I'm currently working on uh, two projects. So my main project is a book project that's about humour and uh, environmental cultures in the Pacific, mostly focused on um, humorous arts in relation to climate change and looking at a number of different different kinds of modes of humor uh, from satire uh, to absurdism to surrealism. And then on the side, I'm doing some essays about the night, cultures of the night uh, and uh, the night sky. And so, yeah, those are the two main things that I'm working
1: on right now. Yeah. And um, I'm working on a book about fiction and lies uh, in the era of uh, what I'm calling climate transition, um, and it is somewhat of an argument for the power of literary imagination, uh, especially in the face of the proliferation of propaganda, lies, and conspiracy theories um, that we've seen in recent years, and that have been profoundly affecting the political landscape of the U.S. and other other nations. Um, and then I have another book that I'm working on with a colleague, Marshall Weisinger, who's an historian. Where we have uh, we've conducted 53 histories of the public lands in the state of Oregon, where I now live, and we're writing about the value of the public lands as seen by a variety of different stakeholders, um, which ultimately this book becomes a, a kind of disposition on what what the term public has come to mean and and public ownership.
0: Thank you for sharing. They sound like wonderful projects and I wish you the very best. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much, Gargi, and best of luck with your projects as well. And thank you for having us today.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having us.